You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points Podcast. I'm your host, Greg White. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series, a collection of audio, video, and written commentary from Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets leaders designed to provide you with timely insights and analysis. The Pacific Alliance, the Latin American trade bloc of Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Mexico, has its sights set on growth. But each country has its own idiosyncrasies that investors need to consider. 2021 is particularly unique as the countries are coming out of a global crisis while facing elections, rewriting constitutions, and managing their fiscal and monetary strategies. On this episode of Market Points, we're joined by Tanya Escobedo, LATAM macro strategist at Scotiabank, and explore the investor's approach to policy and politics in the Pacific Alliance. Hi, Tanya. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me. It's my pleasure. So in early December, uh, you had published a rather favorable outlook for emerging markets uh, going forward. Uh, Do you still hold that opinion? Yes, we do. Um, I still think that 2021 is going to be better in terms of risk appetite in general relative to what we saw in 2020. One of the key developments will, of course, be the deployment of the immunization strategies, the availability of the vaccine that might give investor more visibility and more certainty about the normalization in the global growth. Um, and I think that that will be key for um, you know investors to put a little bit more um, risk into their portfolios with a more medium to long-term view rather than just playing relative value strategies and working with very light volumes as we have seen so far. Um, I also think that the, the, the conditions are there I mean, in liquidity is at all-time highs, and uh, we know that monetary policy and fiscal policies around the world are going to remain very expansive, at least in the next couple of years. And I think that that would, uh, you know, set the stage for a, a better performance of emerging market assets, and in particular, Latin American assets. Well, on that note, let's dive into the Pacific Alliance and starting with Mexico. Again, late last year, uh, you had thought that perhaps investors were being overly pessimistic on Mexico, and that may give way to some opportunities. Are you still seeing that take shape? Yes, and and I think that some of those um, expectations have been materializing. I mean, Mexico ended 2020 uh, in a relatively better shape than what we were expecting at the beginning of the crisis. In the summer consensus was of about a 9.5 percent fall in GDP for 2020 in Mexico. It ends up being about 8.3 percent, and uh, and we have also seen some some positive revisions to growth forecasts for 2021. They they are mainly driven by better perspectives uh, in in the U.S. growth. We know that Mexico and the United States are very very close closely interconnected, and and more growth in the U.S. will mean um, a better performance of the exporting sector in Mexico, manufacturing sector. And, and I think that the, the key here is going to be uh, investment, private investment in Mexico. We know that probably uh, some of the policies that we have seen lately have uh, been driving a fall in, in, in business confidence. And I think that that will be key uh, for, for um, the, the path of growth in Mexico in the medium term. We do have to see a better relationship between the administration and the private sector in order for CapEx to increase. Um, And and we will keep an eye on that because we we do see favorable conditions coming from the external sector. And uh, we also think that there have been relatively positive surprises in in the local consumption, given better statistics in the labor markets. It was hit hard, but it was 
not hit as hard as we thought it would be back in the summer. Uh, and we also had positive surprises, for example, in, in, in remittances, which hit all-time highs in 2020, and, and that put a floor in, in, in domestic consumption that we, we think that will be positive in, in 2021 as well. So uh, we, we will keep an eye on local investment, and uh, we still have a prospect of around 3.5% of growth for 2021, but we do think that there are some uh, upside surprises uh, for that number. Is there still a risk on uh, the outlook for Mexico's debt rating? That, that is a, a topic that is on the mind of every investor that, that wants to put money into Mexican assets. Our base case scenario here at Scotia is that uh, Mexico will hold on to its investment grade. We don't think that it's going to lose investment grade in 2021 or, or 2022. Um, the, the debt metrics have been relatively favorable. And um, of course, given that, that, the, that the government didn't uh, deploy a strong fiscal response to the to the crisis. Mexico is starting 2021 in a much less vulnerable position uh, from the perspective of the fiscal accounts of the government. And I think that that would be a positive when when investors go and cherry pick their assets uh, for uh, you know incorporating or reincorporating risk into their portfolios. Um, Femex will of course be one one important thing to look at. We don't think that 2021 is going to be the year where Pemex is going to, uh, you know, collapse in a way that, that there's a credit uh, a credit event. We, we actually think that it's going to be the same story, probably a weak, um, weak finances, but uh, the government is going to be able to, you know, put some patches to, to remain in, in, in the path that we've been seeing so far. So even if Pemex continues to be um, a relatively weak name uh, in, in terms of credit. We don't think that that's going to have important repercussions in the sovereign in the sovereign rating. And uh, and given that the, the the government has made a very strong commitment to fiscal responsibility, we we do think that even with the three point five percent of growth that we are expecting for twenty twenty one, the Ministry of Finance is going to be able to deliver on their fiscal balances objectives and goals for for the next couple of years. What about the sovereign rating in, in Colombia? There was an expected downgrade in general there and some concerns around uncertainty and fiscal reform, but you had thought that uh, some of that was priced, priced in. Can you expand on that? Yes, I, I do think that Colombia is uh, relative to Mexico, for example, in a little bit of a more urgent uh, situation to tackle the fiscal the fiscal balances. They did start from a from a weaker point uh, when when they started to deploy the fiscal response to um, offset the, the the negative effects of the COVID crisis, and uh, and uh, and they do need to deliver a, a very aggressive tax reform, a very aggressive increase in revenues in in about two percentage points of the GDP, uh, which is a a, a very big uh, fiscal reform that we're talking about. If we take into account that the average size of a typical tax reform in the country has been of about 0.6% of GDP. Um, they would have to increase the VAT, for example, in a significant amount to increase the tax collection as much as they need to. And of course, in a, in a position where you are uh, just getting out of a, of a very deep recession where the labor market has been hit very hard and uh, we know in Colombia, as in other emerging market economies, 
the COVID crisis ended up in a, in a situation where inequalities, economic inequalities widened uh, significantly, uh, I think that it's going to be a tough sell for the government to increase the tax base as much as they need to um, in order to preserve their, their investment grade. Two of the main rating agencies have, have Colombia already uh, just one notch uh, above high yield. And, uh, and, I, and I do think that given the economic, the socioeconomic situation at this point, and given that we also have a elections coming in 2022, it's going to be difficult for the government to uh, negotiate with Congress uh, a, a, a strong tax reform. So um, I'm not saying that it's a, a done deal that Colombia is going to lose investment grade in 2021, but I would say the probabilities are biased towards that, um, that scenario. And that might put a lead on the appetite from investors to, to add duration in Colombia. Um, just uh, because we do not have enough visibility so far to, to kind of, of see if, if, if they're going to be able to preserve the investment grade. Are you concerned about inflation in Colombia then? Um, not, not really. I think that we have seen, uh, I mean, inflation in Colombia is around 1.6% in January. It's a, a very low print, uh, close to historical lows. What we do think is that it's going to be rebounding. A lot of the downside pressures to inflation have to do right now with, you know, subsidies that the government put in place to tackle the, 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 the COVID crisis. Um, a lot of the services, uh, you know, that the, the service sector was, the, was hit the hardest in this pandemic and, and some of the education fees, uh, the tourism, everything, all of those prices collapsed. And, and they're explaining part of the low prints that we're looking at right now. But starting from April, we are anticipating that we will see a rebound in inflation, that it's going to take it relatively fast to the 3%, that is the target of the central bank. Um, and even though we are not expecting any kind of overshot in inflation, uh, we do think that it's going to be the path of inflation is going to be such that the central bank is not going to continue to cut rates. We think that the uh, reference rate is going to stay at 1.75%. Um, at least until the third quarter of 2021. Uh, and probably there we're going to start seeing some discussion about starting a hiking cycle. Um, but yes, the, the path of inflation we think is definitely to the upside um, in the coming months. Nothing, nothing to be concerned about, but um, it, won't, um, it won't give the central bank arguments to, to, to cut again. It's, it's, it, for us, it's going to be a stable rate up until the the last part of 2021. A big question on the minds of investors looking at Peru is what will be the results of this election? How are you uh, assessing the risks of the various potential outcomes? Yeah, in Peru, I, I think that uh, when you get into Peruvian risk, it's always a, a combo um, that comes with political noise, right? I, I think that investors are very used to political noise in Peru and they kind of um, drive through it relatively uh, well at this point. What I think is important is that after the huge fiscal response that we saw in Peru in 2020, um, the, the, the government has uh, less buffers to, um, to kind of uh, face any kind of, of, of new eventuality, right? So um, all of the very solid starting point that we had in 2019 and 2020, is no longer there. So for from now on, I think that the 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 
people in government, the personalities in, in government are going to be key to, um, you know, reassess the, the plan to go back to the path of fiscal sustainability. Um, the Congress is going to be a huge uh, player in this. Um, it, we know that, that Congress in, in 2020 and, and, and so far in 2021 has been very uh, creative in the, in the bills that they put forward um, that, that are not very much in line with the, with the fiscal orthodoxy that we used to see. If there is a Congress after the election that's, that has this more kind of populist approach to law uh, making, um, that's going to be a problem, and I think that that's one of the main risks. Um, and of course, if, if if we get a president that's more biased towards, uh, you know, increasing spending, that's also going to be a, a net negative, I think, for the projections that we have for, for the fiscal balances in, in Peru going forward. Um, for now, I think that uh, there is no uh, there is no plan to kind of reform the, 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 the fiscal framework. There's no tax reform in, in sight for, for at least this year and next. So uh, whoever is in power in 2022, in 2023 is gonna have to deal with all of this. Um, government spending is gonna have to be cut uh, and, and we will have to have a better base for tax collection. So those are the things that are at risk. Um, for for the coming years, I, I think that the markets are going to be very very much um, attentive to to who uh, wins the election, uh, the profile of, of of this new president, and uh, above all the, the the composition of Congress, because that's where we are uh, seeing right now the 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 highest risk of bills that might potentially affect the fiscal balances going forward. You were expecting 2021 to be a relatively large year for new issuance of Peruvian sovereign debt. Uh, will that remain the same regardless of election outcome? Yes. Uh, so far, yes. I mean, they have uh, very uh, specific finance financing needs. Um, and given, uh, as, I, as, as we were saying before, given that they are almost uh, done with the, with the sovereign wealth funds, they don't have much resources left there a lot of the financing needs are going to have to be met with the issuance of new debt. Uh, we are anticipating about 35 billion um, Peruvian soles in, in issuance for, for this year, for this year, for 2021. We do think that they will uh, kind of play a little bit with some global uh, issuances as well. But uh, in, in the end, we think that they will prioritize the issuance in, in Peruvian soles. So, uh, that's that's something that has to be met, even if a um, very orthodox uh, government uh, wins wins the election in April. In any case, uh, or, or if anything, I think the risk might be biased towards a higher uh, financing needs. If there's a kind of a more uh, left uh, left wing uh, government coming in in 2021 probably we will see a little bit more spending in the in the agenda, and that would have to be met with uh, even more issuance from the Peruvian government. A lot of considerable political action also happening in Chile this year. How, how do you expect that to affect its uh, fiscal and monetary picture? Yes, um, it, Chile is, uh, is going to go through a very long and um, very interesting process of uh, writing their new constitution. We have the elections for the new constitution uh, 
assembly in April. Um, and of course, the composition of that constitutional assembly is going to be key to, you know, reassess the prospect of what could be discussed uh, or what um, new proposals could be included in the new constitution. Uh, for now, we think that anything that resembles the constitution of the um, of the current Congress would be well taken by the markets, just because it diminishes or, or decreases the risk of any kind of extreme proposals making their way into the um, into the new constitution. Uh, but in any case, I think that the market at this point is pricing a relatively smooth process that 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 will not result in in in, in big changes uh, for us here at Scotia. Even though we kind of agree with that uh, with that general view, we do think that the new constitution is going to end up validating a, a more expensive government. We know that Chile has always been a very pro-market policies, and that might um, you know reverse a little bit with the new constitution. Probably the government is going to have to be much more active in uh, issues where where they are hands off at the moment. Uh, I'm talking about pensions, education, uh, you know, the distribution and of some services, utilities, etc. So, um, in in any event, I, I do think that structurally, the new constitution is going to mean more spending for Chile, and probably a structurally higher um, level of, of of you know financing needs for uh, for the country, uh, which would mean. Uh, also a higher supply of local bonds uh, for the coming years. Um, and and I, I would keep an eye on two very specific points that I think are very important when, when the discussions of, of this or how the new constitution will look like. The first one is, of course, the autonomy of the central bank. At the moment, we think that it will remain untouched, but anything that messes up with the idea of independence and autonomy of the central bank will be uh, very relevant for the markets. Um, and the other thing is the fiscal rule. Uh, we think that the best case scenario should leave most of their responsibility on spending size and allocation to the executive. If that changes, that could also mean a very important you know, structural change in how things are done fiscally in Chile. Um, in, 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 in terms of the short-term implications for monetary policy, I don't think that we will see much happening in 2021. Uh, this is more of a long-term uh, event. So in 2021, we're still very comfortable thinking that the central bank will keep the, the rate uh, on change at 0.5% for, for the rest of the year and probably well into 2022, where we might see some discussions of, of a hike probably in the first quarter. That was Tanya Escobedo, LATAM macro strategist at Scotiabank. You can now find Scotiabank's Market Points on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And we want to hear from you. Please rate and review the show. Your feedback helps us improve the content we create for you. You'll find more thought-leading content on our website, gbm.scotiabank.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at ScotiabankGBM, as well as our LinkedIn showcase page under Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website. I'm Greg White. Thanks for listening.